Well, walk into the supermarket and you'll find the shelves stocked with light groceries. You'll find light mayonnaise and light salad dressing, light crackers and light cheese, even light maple syrup. Can you believe it? There is such a thing. You'll also find light potato chips. There they are. And check this out. Light spam? <laughs> oh, my. You'll even find light dog food. Yeah. Everything these days needs to be less calories, fat-free, no cholesterol. We all want our foods to still taste great but be less filling. And yet, sad today, there are some churchgoers who've also taken this same approach to their faith. They've opted for a gospel light, a watered-down version of Christianity. They want a low-calorie faith, a Christianity zero. You know, several years ago, a cartoon appeared in a Christian magazine which showed a church marquee. It was advertising to the community. It read, the light church, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments. You choose. We use just three spiritual laws and have an 800-year millennium. Everything you wanted in a church and less. When my kids were tots, I would get them to bed by promising them the Coke cup. They love Coca-Cola, as all kids do. So if everyone was in bed by the time I counted to 10, they could all get a sip out of the Coke cup. <laughs> Little did they know that the famous Coke cup was watered-down solution. It was about 30% Coke and 70% tap water. Those kids always wondered why the Coke tasted stronger at granddaddy's. You know, there is certainly no harm in a dad manipulating his toddlers with a little cut-down Coke. But what is dangerous is for a pastor or a church, when it starts to dilute the demands of the gospel to make it more palatable to society's tastes, this is what is dangerous. It's been called easy believism. Or cheap grace. It's the idea that saving faith is nothing more than coming forward at a church service, mouthing a prayer, signing a card, just jumping through a few religious hoops, and you're saved for all eternity. You've got some fire insurance. Salvation is nothing more than signing up for the retreat, and it doesn't even cost 80 bucks. Yet that's not what we learn about salvation from Scripture. Grace is free, but it's definitely not cheap. Jesus paid a steep price to earn God's favor. And though it comes to us at no charge, we still have to desire it with all our hearts. Paul said to the Romans, Romans chapter 10 verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth Confession is made unto salvation. Notice it's with the heart that a person receives God's righteousness. In other words, 
Salvation is given to those who desire it, who reach out to God with all their heart to receive it. You don't just expect God to toss it in your lap. When Philip witnessed to the Ethiopian on the road to Gaza, the seeker asked him, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip answered, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And James would agree. Salvation is by grace through faith, but heart faith leaves tracks. It impacts a person's life. It makes a difference in how I respond to trials and in what I value and in my approach to temptation and in how I treat other people. Real faith displays evidence that it's there. It leaves behind tracks. You know, it's been said of today's church, the gospel has become so diluted. If it were a medicine, it would heal no one. And if it were a poison, it would harm no one. As my kids can testify, you can dilute a Coca-Cola to the point where it's no longer the real thing. And the same is true with the gospel. And this is the concern that James carries into the last half of chapter 2. Apparently, even in the early church, there were preachers who were trying to broaden the gospel's appeal by dumbing down its demands. Here James steps up to help us define the true nature of saving faith. He begins in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith. Now understand this man's claim. James speaks of a hypothetical Christian with a hypothetical faith. He says he has faith. I hope you realize it's easy to talk about faith. Every now and then a celebrity will convert to Christianity and he or she will get paraded through the mega churches and across the Christian television They'll share their testimony. Everybody will ooh and ah. Then a few months later, there they are going through a nasty divorce. Or they've been arrested with a DUI. Sadly, they talk the talk before they walk the walk. And it's easy to do. Real faith is not a silent faith. It speaks out. But there's more to it than mere words. It also involves works discernible changes in how I live. You see, James asks, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? James asks a loaded question. He's trying to get us to think. A man says he has faith, but is it real faith if it has no works? Is faith nothing more than religious rhetoric, hollow claims? Shallow sentiments? Does a faith with no substance qualify as real faith? You know, the church I used to attend as a kid used the expression, professions of faith. When a person came to Christ, they had made a profession of faith. But I never liked the terminology. For saving faith is more than just a profession of mere words. The person who truly believes doesn't just say so. Real faith is a possession. It's a living thing that I grab hold of, that grows and that bleeds out of me and that shows up all over my life. If there's only words, it's just a pretend faith. 
James is asking, what really constitutes saving faith? His answer is in verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, oh, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Well, it profits zilch. I mean, your blessing is nothing more than hollow words. It's certainly not compassion, not until it moves you to action. And if real love always has hands and legs and feet, what about real faith? You see, for faith to qualify as true faith, there also has to be some action and some movement and some response. Verse 17 says it best, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. This past week, a killer earthquake devastated the northern coast of Japan. We should pray for those folks. It also sent a tsunami wave across the ocean toward Hawaii. On Thursday night, sirens sounded all over the Hawaiian Islands, warning folks to evacuate the beaches, to move to higher ground. So when the waves hit on Friday morning, there were no casualties. And do you know why? It's because everyone believed those warnings. They took action. Their faith moved them. You see, if someone had not evacuated, it would have been a proof of the absence of faith. And this is what James is saying. A living faith is engaged. It acts on what it believes. It leaves tracks in the person's life, whereas a non-committal, passive faith is really not faith at all. It's a dead faith, James says. It's a spiritual corpse masquerading as faith. Perhaps you've heard of Charles Blondin. He was a famous acrobat. On June the 30th, 1859, Blondin crossed Niagara Falls on a 38 three-inch wide manila rope. It was stretched 1,100 feet across the falls at a height of 160 feet above the water. And over the course of that summer, Blondin did a number of stunts from this tightrope. One day, he did a backward somersault. Can you imagine? One night, he crossed blindfolded. He pushed a wheelbarrow across this rope. He walked the rope on stilts. Another night, he crossed the rope in the dark with Roman candles flaring from the ends of his balancing poles. He even cooked an omelet halfway across the rope on a portable stove he'd carried with him, and then he lured it down to a boat on the river. But Blondin's most amazing feat on the wire above Niagara Falls came the following summer, on September the 15th, 1860. Before crossing the river that morning, he turned to the crowd, the bystanders, and he asked them, do you believe I can carry a man across the river, across this rope on my back? The crowd roared, yes, we believe. That's when Blondin asked for a volunteer. (laughs) But there were no takers. At one point, Blunden pointed to an eager-looking fellow on the front row, right there in the front of the crowd. He said, will you volunteer? The fellow balked. He said, you don't think for a second I'm going to risk my life like that. No way. And the fellow turned and walked away quietly. 
You see, of all the people who had shouted, yes, we believe, who nodded their agreement, none were willing to ride on Blondin's back. Their so-called faith was nothing but talk. You see, their lack of action betrayed their claim to faith. That is until finally one man stepped forward. The crowd didn't know it, but it was Blondin's manager, Harry Colcord. You see, Harry had already tied his future to Blondin's daring, so why not just go all out and trust him with his very life? And you see, this will be your reaction if you really trust Jesus. You'll climb on the Savior's back, and you'll let him carry you all the way. You'll tie every area, every hope and dream, you'll tie them to Jesus Christ. Real faith, saving faith, the faith that gets you to heaven now, It's not a sideline faith. It's a faith that acts on what it believes. It lives out its implications. Notice in verse 18, James once again takes a position with which he disagrees, but for the sake of argument. We might say he plays the devil's advocate. He writes, but someone will say. That's not true, but someone says it. This is not a it is written. It's just a someone will say. Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. In other words, this someone James mentions is trying to separate faith and works. But James responds, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. In reality, faith and works are inseparable. First, let's not confuse what James teaches here. Some folks will err by redefining faith and works. Realize, faith is faith. Works are works. Don't make faith another work. You know, the legalists will emphasize certain deeds and rituals until they swallow up faith. They'll emphasize doing this and not doing that, so much so that your faith ends up in what you're doing or what you're not doing. They've turned faith into a work. You know, you assume you're entitled to go to heaven because you attend church on Sunday and you do taxes on on time and you witness and you tie 10% and you don't get drunk and you don't cheat on tests and, man, I buy Girl Scout cookies and I'm an organ donor and I've got a porno filter on my internet. I have to be headed to heaven. Well, not hardly. You see, all the goodness in the world isn't good enough to satisfy a holy God. It's by faith, not by works. If we could be right with God on our own merit, Jesus would have never had to die in our place. It took nothing less than the cross of Christ to gain God's forgiveness and acceptance for us. Jesus paid a debt we couldn't afford to pay. This is why we obtain and we maintain a right standing with God by faith. And faith is faith. Don't ramp it up into some religious deed. Don't try to define faith by your performance. Faith is just simple trust in Jesus. That's what God requires. Salvation is by faith and faith alone. But here's James' point. Faith is never alone. Faith and works are inseparable. And this is why he says, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Real faith will always produce good works. Here's how it works. Going to church, that's not faith, that's a work. 
I mean, church attendance doesn't make me a Christian any more than going to Dunkin' Donut makes me a snowball cop. <laughs> Just kidding. Don't need to get in any more trouble with those guys. No, I'm saved by faith alone. But if I believe that I'm saved, if I believe I'm part of God's family, I want my faith to grow. I'll make church a high priority. Tithing 10% of my income, that's a work. It's not going to get you to heaven. But if I trust Jesus, if I really have faith, if I trust him with my eternal soul, then why can't I give him a portion of my income? It's just a minimal way to say thanks and express my faith tangibly. Stocking up on thin mints. Certainly it's not going to get me through the pearly gates. But man, if my heart is so hard and so cold that I can resist a cute little girl in a Girl Scout uniform selling delicious cookies, well, enough said about me. I mean, don't turn faith into a work. Faith is faith. Works are works. But real faith will produce good works. Over the years, people have been confused by the book of James. Some people consider it opposed to Paul's letters, especially here, verse 24. Notice what James says. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Wow. That seems to fly in the face of what Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he got so upset with James, the book of James, that he called this letter a right strawy epistle. <laughs> Luther felt the book was of lesser value than the writings of John and Peter and Paul. It was strawy in contrast to their solid gold. Luther thought James allowed himself to be too easily misinterpreted. In fact, he got so frustrated with the book of James that in 1542, Luther wrote this, I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove. <laughs> Luther belittled the apostle James by calling him Jimmy. He never rejected James as part of the canon of Scripture, but Luther didn't hold it in the same esteem as he did the rest of the New Testament. You know, in reality, Luther's frustration was in vain. It was needless. There really is no contradiction between James and the teachings of Jesus and Peter and Paul and the rest of the New Testament. I like what James Vernon McGee points out. He encourages us to think of Paul and James not as two enemies fighting each other toe-to-toe, face-to-face, -to -face, but as two allies, back-to-back, -back, you know, fighting opposite enemies, but with the same truth yet from different angles. Paul fought the legalist who said the gospel is faith in Christ plus works. That's wrong. James, though, fought the opposite enemy, the liberal, who said faith has nothing to do with how we live. That's wrong too. The so-called conflict between Paul and James clears up when you understand the difference in personality and vocation of the two authors. Paul was a theologian by trade. He was an expert in the law. And a lawyer is adept at breaking down abstract ideas. 
Paul could decipher steps and causes and effects. James, though, he was the son of a carpenter. James was measured by the finished product, not by the steps it took to get there. The procedures you follow while building a chair don't really matter if you end up with a handsome, sturdy piece of furniture. James only cared about the end result. And this is how the two men dealt with salvation. Paul was careful to break down salvation into its causes and into its effect. Faith alone was its cause. Fruits of the Spirit and good works will be its effects. That's according to Paul. Whereas James saw salvation as a whole. He was so sure that faith produced works, he saw salvation as a package deal. If a life didn't show good works, then the obvious explanation was that it didn't possess real faith. You see, think of Paul's letters as spiritual schematics. They break down the inner workings of faith. While the book of James is the view from 30,000 feet, it shows you the overall picture. It shows that real faith will look like if it's applied to a person's life. Paul x-rays the roots of faith. James eyeballs the fruits of faith. Paul says that faith comes first and should never be confused with works. But James says works will follow faith as sure as the night follows the day. Works are evidence of faith. Package together both perspectives and you see the picture perfectly. Your faith is not a faith that saves unless it's a faith that works. You see, James is writing to most Southerners. He's writing to us here today. He's writing to people born and bred in the South, folks who grew up in church, who cut their teeth on the back of a pew. You know, some of us, we've been sold a false piece of goods. You know, a lot of Southerners assume that by responding to the pastor's invitation and walking the aisle and praying the prayer, boom, they're safe for all eternity. There are folks who've made a decision for Jesus at 10 years old, but have, but have never given in the time of day since. And yet they think they're saved. And here's their confidence. We're saved by faith. Believe in Jesus, that's all that matters. Well, then you can go on your merry way and party on the weekends and live as you please and run your own life. And you never have to think about God anymore. Hey, let me warn you. This is the idea that's sending some of you and many of your friends straight to hell. Don't assume that salvation is by faith or since salvation is by faith, then once I believe, nothing else matters. That's not true. Once I believe, everything else does matter. Faith now impacts the whole enchilada. Real faith has implications for every area of my life. You see, James had a strong word for those who say they believe in Jesus and yet nothing's changed in their life. Listen to verse 19. He says, you believe that there is one God? Well, you do well. But even the demons believe and tremble. Just agreeing with the facts about Jesus, just giving a little nod to God without allowing his truth to grip your will and impact your life, that's not genuine faith. Don't be deceived. That's just demon faith, man, not saving faith. Just because a person says, oh, I believe in God, doesn't mean they're headed to heaven. It just means they have the faith of a hellish demon. You and the demons got the same faith. Oh, boy, big deal. 
I, I want you to understand, demons are orthodox in their theology. They are right on doctrinally. Clarity is not the demon's problem. Did you know the average demon has a better grasp on truth than the brightest theologian? Yet apparently just knowing God's truth, just being theologically accurate isn't enough to constitute true faith. Saving faith demands my allegiance. It requires my whole heart. James says even the demons believe and tremble. You know, the Greek word translated tremble, it means to bristle up. The demons bristle up. Here's verse 19 in the Amplified Version. So do the demons believe and shudder in terror and horror, such as make a man's hair stand on end. You know, they believe in such a way that they become afraid. You know, a demon's faith doesn't save them, but it scares them. A demon only focuses on God's judgment. The demons fear the wrath of God, but they've refused the love of God. And it's God's love that leads a man to repentance. You see, you can believe in God intellectually, but to truly believe in Him, you have to receive from Him. It's a matter of the heart, your desire. Notice verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Faith that's not accompanied by works is dead. It has expired. It might have been alive at one time, but now it's deceased. You see, here's the misconception. We think of faith as a contract, as a sign on the bottom line kind of arrangement. So you respond to the altar call and you make a decision for Christ. You sort of sign up for this thing. But then you fold up the contract and you file it away somewhere. And some people never look at it again, yet they still think it applies. They got a contract. And boy, they'll whip it out if they ever need any coverage. But the Bible depicts faith as a seed, a living thing that nestles down into the soil of our hearts. It grows if we water it and weed it and fertilize it and feed it. That seed grows and it produces fruit. But if you neglect that seed, what will happen to it? It will wither and shrivel up and die. You see, some people have a dinosaur faith. Their faith is now extinct. It might have existed at one time, but no more. Today it's now a pretend faith. It's an imaginary faith. It's no longer real. James wraps up his thoughts on faith and works with two Old Testament examples of real faith. First, he mentions the founder of the Hebrew nation, Abraham. And this is so noteworthy. For Abraham is known as the father of our faith. And yet he too had works. In Genesis 15, God made a promise to Abraham. He would be the daddy of many nations. And yet at the time, Abraham and his wife had two problems that made God's promise seem so preposterous. First, they were childless. Hard to be a daddy if you don't have any children. And second, they were senior citizens. At the time, Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 65. Yet Genesis 15 verse 6 tells us, Abraham believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him for righteousness. 
But don't think the story ends there. Faith stories never end with an initial foray into faith. For faith follows through. It'll be 25 years later when God finally fulfills his promise and a child is born to Abraham and Sarah. They were the only couple in history to pay for the labor and deliver with Medicaid. (laughs) Old man Abraham was 35 years post-retirement age when he became the father of a newborn. But there's still more. Even after Isaac is born, Abraham's faith gets tested. Faith always gets tested. And his faith has to act. God tells, tells Abraham to offer his son as a sacrifice. Abraham is instructed by God to slay the very fulfillment of his own promise. And Abraham obeys. What else can faith do? He holds a knife to the throat of Isaac. And he believes God will raise him from the dead if necessary. Instead, God provides a ram. It was all a practice run for what God would later do on that same mountain. God the Father would slay another sacrifice, his only son Jesus. Now here's James's point. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or complete. If Abraham had refused to obey, how could we say he trusted in God? I mean, real faith follows its implications. Reject the ramifications of faith, and it's safe to assume you never believed in the first place. If I pray for rain, and then I walk out without my umbrella that morning, did I really pray in faith? Did I really believe? No, because faith follows through. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That promise was made by God to Abraham 25 years earlier. At the time it was first made, faith alone was enough to declare Abraham righteous. Yet in the years that followed, his persistence, the persistence of Abraham's faith confirmed its genuineness. It proved that faith both latches on, but then holds on to God's promises. James says of Abraham, and this is such a beautiful statement, and he was called the friend of God. Did you know Abraham is the only person in Scripture referred to by this title? The friend of God. And yet I think this is the essence of faith. Think of faith as friendship. You don't let a friend down. You watch each other's back. You trust each other. You're loyal to a friend. A willingness exists between friends to protect each other and to cooperate and work together with each other and try to please one another. And this is, the, this is true of faith. I mean, do you have a friendship with God? Real faith creates unbreakable ties between us and God. Bonds of love begin to form. We act like friends of God. God considers us to be his friend. And then James states in verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And in the context of what James has already laid out, this is true. It makes good sense. If faith is real, it will inevitably produce works. It's been said we're saved by faith, not works, but real faith works. James sees faith and works as a continuum. 
He's not trying to figure out where faith ends and where works begin. He sees them as one unbroken chain. Of course, one does end and one does begin. And that's what Paul writes about in his letters to the churches. But in the context of how James sees salvation, it's not just fitting for him to say that we're justified by faith. He can also say we're justified by works. For in his mind, we're justified by both, faith and works. For in practice, how do you separate the two? How can you separate the root from the fruit? They're all one. And then he provides us one more illustration, verse 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? In Hebrews 11, we learn that God had mercy on the madam, the prostitute Rahab, because of her faith in the will of God. She was saved by faith. But then she acted on what she believed. It wasn't just a faith that she muttered with her mouth. It was a faith she followed up on with her actions. Rahab didn't just say she believed that God would overthrow Jericho. She tied her fortunes to God's people. She chose sides. You see, faith always takes sides. She hid the Israeli spies. She helped them avoid detection. And then she helped them escape the city by repelling down the wall on a scarlet cord that hung from her window. You know, the blood of Jesus is our scarlet cord. That's what saves us today. But it saves only those brave enough to hang it from their window and use it to separate themselves from this wicked world. Even today, faith takes sides. And James closes his thoughts on faith and works in verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Here James gives us a biblical definition for death. When does death occur? When the heart stops. When the brain waves cease. When the lungs refuse to breathe. You know, in a world of modern medicine, there are exceptions to all the above. But here's the ultimate answer. Death occurs when the spirit leaves the body. You know, there is a physical part and a spiritual part to you. Like faith and works, we're not always sure where the one begins and the other ends, but they both exist. You're as much, if not more, a living soul than you are a human body. Humans are not highly evolved animals. We are made in God's image. We're eternal souls who decide our own destiny, either heaven or hell. Here, James pinpoints physical death as the moment the spirit vacates the body. And likewise, God pronounces a spiritual death when faith is vacated by works. When faith exists without works. When your spirit leaves your body, you're dead in a doorknob. Your body is. And it doesn't take long for your body to start to deteriorate. And in the same manner, a faith that is dead also loses its spark and its vigor and its guts and its daring and even its beauty. It becomes corpse-like. I hope you have a living faith, a true saving faith, a faith that works. Here's today's big idea. When the Spirit of God stirs up a person's faith and invades a human heart, that person can't remain the same. Change is inevitable. That life will change. It has to change. 
This is why you should think back this morning on when you first believed. If nothing much spiritually has transpired since then, if you're no more like Christ now than you were then, if your life has no new evidence of God's impact, if you're just the same old, same old, then you have detected a dead faith. Rather than Christianity zero, we all need some jolt Christianity. That's what we need. Faith should pack a punch. Twice the love, twice the loyalty, twice the passion, twice the obedience, twice the commitment. Faith leaves tracks. It leaves tracks all over our lives. Father, we thank you for your word today. And for the challenge that you have presented to our hearts. And Lord, if there's someone here today who who's just been convicted by the Holy Spirit. They've just been busted. God, you've touched their heart today. And you've said to them, this is you. Your faith has died. It's a dead faith. But I want to make it alive again. I want to restore it. I want to stir you back up to faith in Jesus, to real faith, to faith that works. There's someone here today, Lord, who would say, yes, Pastor Sandy, pray for me. I just want to ask you to raise your hand right now. Is there somebody here that would say, yes, I want you to pray that prayer for me? Great. Good. Anybody else that would say, yes, yeah, I see your hand. That's great. Up in the balcony, several folks. Anybody else? Great. Good. Yes. Great, you can put them down now, that's great. Anybody else? Good, good. She'd say, yes, you know, I, I, want, I want God to stir up my faith, make it fresh, make it new. Anybody else? Good. Well, Father, you've seen these hands. You know these hearts. Lord, I just pray today, Lord, that we would get serious about following you. These are heavy truths, and I pray, Lord, that we would take them seriously and give them the gravity in our lives that they deserve. Lord, I thank you for those that have responded this morning, that have raised their hand, or that want you to stir up their hearts, that, that want revival this morning in their life, a revived faith, a revived spirit, a revived love and passion for you. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill us afresh. And fill those hearts to overflowing this morning. Father, we thank you for your truth today. We ask that you continue to work in our lives in the days ahead. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.